as has already been mentioned, what a joyful opportunity we have this morning, even as the psalmist declared so long ago, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up unto the house of the Lord, the opening verse of Psalm 122. Even this morning, as I look out over the audience, so many of our members, of course, are able in health to be present today, and for that we're very, very thankful. But also some visitors, as is often the case, have come our way, and we're certainly appreciative for your presence, and want you to come back at any and every opportunity that you may have to be with us. In our series of studies that we engage in from time to time, we, of course, are always of the disposition that the Scriptures are meaningful, Though they were written, of course, many, many years ago now, their lessons are ever needful, they're ever pertinent, and that is the only way that we can live pleasingly before the eyes of our Heavenly Father. As the psalmist so powerfully stated it indeed, for we recognize that in Him we find in His Word the things that we can use to help prevent sin. This morning, the very subject that we will consider has to do with an interesting five-letter word, judge. That's a word that we often hear, in fact, used rather frequently. It can be used as a noun. It can be used as a verb. And the manner in which we employ that word often has a great deal of distinction in the exact way we're using it. Today, we'd like to discuss a little bit about how the Bible uses that word. And in fact, is it wrong to judge? In fact, that's the given title that I have utilized for this lesson. You may, in fact, have had someone tell you that, well, it's not right for you to judge me. It is not, in fact, appropriate for you to express your thoughts and thus judge me for behavior or lack of behavior on my part. We'd like to know ultimately today, is it wrong to do that? Or are there instances in which it's not only appropriate, but in fact commanded? We'll let the Bible speak for itself on that point. But could I, by way of introduction, ask you to notice that the word judge or judging in the respective ways in which it's employed means to dispense justice. In some way or another, it has the idea behind it of dispensing or concluding that which is in accordance to what is just. But in addition to that, we also note that in the noun form, that person that sits on the bench and has been charged with using law to thus make decisions about the matters related that are brought before him or her, he or she is to make decisions about the dispensing of justice that's right or wrong in a certain case. You and I see then that as judging takes place, a decision is made. Can you and I make such decisions in matters of religion? If so, when and how? I'd encourage you to think with me then how often it is that when you and I are told that it's not right to judge, almost invariably it has a negative thrust. As long as we are in agreement with the person and hold up their hands as being right, they will never challenge us on judging them then. But it's only when we disagree with them. It's only when we in fact affirm for them or testify that some behavior is inappropriate then and only then are we apt to hear what it isn't right for you to judge. Let us look then to the Bible. What can we conclude about the aspect of judging? I'd ask you to begin with me in the Old Testament. As is often the case, we appreciate in the thrust of that Old Testament the fact that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Though we understand that that's not the law beneath which we serve and live today, nonetheless, the examples contained therein are vital and essential, 
And in fact, they are commanded upon us to appreciate. As far back as the book of Deuteronomy, we learn some rather valuable lessons about judging. First of all, two incredibly important points are, must be made first in our lesson today. With regard to a person who sits in a position of judge and makes decisions, it must quickly be affirmed that that decision must be based on some authoritative standard, some law that's applicable and appropriate to the state at hand. That's self-evident, isn't it? That person who wears the black robe and who sits on the bench, if that person is making decisions based upon, for instance, his own personal feelings or her own personal historical disposition, then the judgment rendered is worthless. The decisions are to be based upon law. And that's why they are required to do so much schooling, to be schooled thoroughly in the law and in the past decisions that have been made by using that law. Well, notice what is said in Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 and 19. There, when judges were appointed amongst the children of Israel, they were in fact to do that which was of justice, they were to make right judgments which demanded that they make them in accordance to the law that God had given. But notice there's another point we as well can make. In addition to a judge making decisions based upon law, as standard, it's also important to note that the decisions they made were to be based upon deeds or actions that were done. Perhaps that goes without saying. But you and I know as humans, we can't read the thoughts and impressions of another person. Unless someone tells me what he or she is thinking, you and I have no idea. Thus, a judge can't read the mind of the person who is being judged. The case has to be decided by facts, by evidence, by things that are presented which can substantiate the case of one side or the other. Notice again in Deuteronomy 19, the same point is therein made in verse 18, that the judges that Israel had were to make their decisions based upon careful consideration of the evidence. They were in to inquire, in other words. To say those things is to quickly say that if that's what's demanded of judgment, that you must have law that applies, and there must be evidence that, that can substantiate one side or the other, we are now in a position to ask, can we do that in religion? Do we have a law that applies? And furthermore, are there facts which substantiate the case? For if so, then we are certainly in position to form conclusions or thoughts that would involve judgment. Let us look at religion. Is there a law that applies today? Do you and I serve as those in this era beneath a law in the realm of religion? as we turn to the Holy New Testament, we might begin in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21, where there Paul made the following remark, To them that are without law, I became as without law, that I might gain them that are without law. But parenthetically in the course of that passage, Paul did note, Not as though we're not without law, for we are under law to Christ. Paul thus made the comment, and very powerfully so, that we are serving beneath the law of Christ. There is a law apparently in place today in the realm of religion, isn't there? In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul made the comment, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 1, we read, There is therefore now no condemnation to them, 
that walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Why is that, Paul? For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath set me free from the law of sin and death. Paul thus made observation of a law. You and I do serve under the law of Christ. Given then that there is a law in place, and given then that this authority has been vested in the Holy Scriptures, we can easily draw one conclusion, certainly. This law in place, God has not supernaturally invested that in a person. You and I can't go to a person, for instance, like the old judges of the Old Testament or those prophets of the Old Testament as often as the individuals would and beseech them for perfect knowledge about the law of God. God hasn't vested that infallibly and supernaturally in a person, has He? Despite what some religious individuals upon the earth may think. However, that does lead us to the second observation. Do we, in addition to that, have the circumstance in which deeds and actions can be used to draw conclusions? In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 11, we find that answer. In the course of that opening comment of that 1 Corinthians epistle, Paul made the observation there that who knoweth what is in a man other than the spirit of the man? Again, we see that you and I are not able to read the mind of other people. You and I, unlike Jesus, cannot read the heart and mind of a person without him telling us what he thinks. That leads us to say, certainly, that you and I are limited on that point. But God can do that. God can read the hearts of a man. He can read the clarity of his thinking, the power of his disposition, the notion of what is taking place in his reasoning, in his mind. So we should easily see then that there's coming a day when a grand judgment will take place. And on that occasion, God will exactly judge in accordance to that which is right. And as such, it matters not whether the person ever said anything about it or not. God can read the heart, can't he? I've listed some passages for you to consider on that point. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, notice the very last two verses of that book. We learn so easily that the whole conclusion of the matter is to fear God and keep His commandments. But then in the next verse, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing according to whether it be good or whether it be evil. Even secret things will be mentioned and noticed and held before us in terms of us being judged thereby. In Romans 2 verse 16, in the New Testament era, Paul said, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, the secrets of men will be judged. Isn't it fair to say in light of all of that that even our thoughts are thus significant? Jesus made note that that which defiles a man can include evil thoughts, Matthew 15, 19. Thus, we must not only guard our words and to guard our actions, but even our thinking to ensure that it is in harmony with the wonderful teaching of the Word of God. We've thus concluded that all the necessary aspects of judging in terms of religion are available to us. There's a law in place, and actions and deeds can result in conclusions. No wonder then you and I are commanded on occasion to judge. In John 7 verse 24, Jesus said, Judge not after the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. You and I thus there by the Savior Himself 
are told on certain instances to, in fact, engage in the process of judging. We are to be judges. Now, we certainly must finish our lesson to find out the specifics of that. But it's fair to say that it is not inherently wrong to judge in matters of religion because our Lord has commanded it, and many other texts, in fact, will relate so powerfully to it. With that said, I'd like to ask you to think of five quick points that we'll make about the aspect of judging in matters of religion. And the first point, which we shall get to ever so shortly, will be based upon the fact of how the word judge is used in the New Testament. You see, it can be used in two different main ways, one of which that I've listed is this, to form a considered estimation based on the evidence to form a considered judgment of that which has taken place. There is another way, however, in which that same word can be used. It means to eternally condemn. It would seem easy enough to say that that latter one is not left to you and me. You and I are not in a position as God is to declare a person or a group of people to be eternally condemned. It is, however, to be noted, if God says so, if it is in fact His judgment that makes that affirmation, then it's not my judgment or yours, it's His. Let us look at some passages, beginning with our first point, in which aspects of judgment are absolutely vital. And may I repeat, absolutely essential. The first point takes us more clearly to elaborate on what is it that is the standard. First point, note with me the scriptures. That which must serve as the basis for judgment in matters of religion is the Holy Bible. The absolute character of the Word of God, again, that is not left to you and me as individuals or humans because we are not in a position to be infallible. We're not in a position to be absolutely inerrant. Note some passages along that line, if you would, please. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The opening aspect of verse 16 reads again, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word in Greek is theonoustos, literally God-breathed. The Scriptures literally have emanated from the very mouth, if you will, of God, and hence they carry all the infallibility of God. They aren't subject to being wrong. They aren't subject to human whimsy or fancy. They're absolutely inerrant in every regard. Thus, when you and I open the holy pages of the Scriptures and base conclusions on, say, some particular action or deed of ourselves or others based on that, it is a decree of the judgment of God, not of you or me. The Scriptures are inerrant, and thus they are able to serve as the matter in related to judgment. Our Savior stated in John 12, verse 48, again, interestingly, using the very nature of the Scriptures, "...he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him." The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. We can rest assured then that on that great and final day, one of those books that will be opened is this one. You and I each have a copy of it. It shall be opened and my life and yours will be judged in comparison to this. 
the thus, if this is the if the this is the standard of judgment for that day, can it not serve even now while we're still alive as a pattern or as a matter of judging to help us appreciate when we are failing or also to compliment us when we're doing that which is appropriate? To make those statements allows me to then state concerning the matter of judgment. As long as we use the Scriptures as the basis and the Scriptures as the standard, we're in the very position of noting what Paul declared in Athens in Acts 17, verse 30. For there he very powerfully made note of the nature of the judgment of this world and the times of this ignorance God winked at. And now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Thus, as Paul stood there on Mars Hill in Athens, he said, Gentlemen, I'm telling you, God no longer winks at ignorance, but commands all men everywhere, and that includes you, to repent. And thus today, if we open the Scriptures and from it draw conclusions and urge men to repent or to engage in other matters of obedience, not only is that not wrong, that is absolutely demanded of us. And that is not judging that person. That is using the Scriptures as the matter of deciding whether or not their life is appropriately pleasing before the eyes of God. It is in essence forewarning them because there's going to be a day that unless things change, God will tell them that based on this. Thus it isn't wrong for us to use the same thing to tell them that now. But what might be a second observation about judging? As you and I consider the act, of the act of judging, we first should begin with ourselves. For it is also the case we must judge ourselves. I thought that important to include because so often we think about judgment as it applies to somebody else. But the Bible on more than one occasion affirms that we must always be careful to judge ourselves. Now we realize in terms of the actual laws of the land that that's an interesting matter. But it's not here. For we have an external judgment to ourselves, the scriptures that we can use to decide whether my own life is it right or not. I've listed some texts for your consideration. Consider with me 2 Corinthians 13.5. And the whole point of Paul's thrust, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. That word examine means to analyze, to scrutinize, to compare the aspects of your life versus the scriptures and thus draw a conclusion as to whether or not you are in the faith. And I am in the faith. Thus, that command is left for you and me individually. We must judge ourselves in that regard. Or what about 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21? Prove all things, hold to that which is good. You and I are thus told to prove, that is to test, to consider, to check all things. Avoid that which is not good, but cleave, hold to, grasp that which is good. That demands if we're to prove something, we must judge it, to analyze it, to check it. May we ever thus realize that when it comes to judging, we must start at home with ourselves, using the Bible as that guide, that masterpiece, if you will, to determine whether my life and yours is right in the sight of God. 
That judgment thus, as it begins with ourselves, quickly does allow us to make a third point. And this one is, of course, the one maybe you've already raced in your mind to with me. As we consider that judgment, and as we consider proving all things, and as we consider examining ourselves, we must thus carefully consider that doctrinal teaching presented to us. And that's the third point. We must, this is not left as option, we must judge the character of that religious teaching presented to us and make choices about whether or not it is in harmony with the Word of God. If it is, we must support it. If it's not, we first must avoid taking it into ourselves and also we should attempt to correct it. Let's look at some passages that help us see that. The identification of truth. There is a truth in religion. Our world often tells us that's not true. The world often tells us that it largely depends on the sincerity and feeling of the heart. But our Lord said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In that context, isn't it an amazing remembrance that those Pharisees were in fact asking Jesus about the nature of their bondage and what it was as the hope and promise of Israel. Our Lord in the midst of that discussion said, Ye shall know the truth. He was not interested in their religious tradition. He wasn't interested in their religious disposition or their thinking, for that was immaterial. What was vital and what was important and that which produced freedom was truth. It can be known. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Isn't it thus the case that you and I should quickly remember that in regard to religious teaching, there will be some who will proclaim that truth in great earnestness and defense thereof. And oh, how thankful for them we can be. But there will also be others that will proclaim that which is not in accordance to truth. That must be identified. Did not Paul say, Mark and avoid them that teach doctrine contrary to what you have been delivered? Romans 16 verse 17. Thus we must mark. That means identify. That means make note of. And notice he said avoid. In the sense of not become victims of that false teaching. One of the texts that seems ever so penetrating in regard to that fourth point we've just listed has to do with the beauty of Acts 17. As Paul and his companions were involved in their missionary journeys, we find when they came to this city of Berea, on the second missionary journey here in Berea, we find these words. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. It is clear, isn't it, that what Paul and his companions preached, those in Berea were so incessantly interested in it that they checked it versus what the Scriptures declared. No doubt they appreciated the thrust of what Paul said, for he spoke the truth. But oh, what that must mean for those false teachers that came to Berea. They must have identified them as false, just as the church in Ephesus did in Revelation 2, marking those false teachers, and in fact finding them to be false. These texts lead us to John's famous statements in 1 John 4 verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God. You and I today can still try the spirits. 
We do so by knowing in 1 John 2 verse 4 that he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Thus we can see that is that which they say a part of God's commands. If it is, that person's not a liar. That's a true teacher. But if what that person is saying in terms of his knowledge of God and his appreciation of what he claims to be truth does not harmonize with God's commandments, despite what else the man may say, he's a liar. That may sound harsh, and that may sound judgmental, but friend, it isn't. For you and me, it's judgmental for God. For that's God's judgment, not mine, not yours. And thus, when you and I make statements like that, that is a de declaration of God's judgment, not human. There's a world of difference between my judgment and God's, isn't it? A world of difference between your judgment and God's. It's fair to say, in light of this remark, that we can easily consider yet another point. We hinted at this earlier, but it's time to look at it more thoroughly. When we noted the matter of judgment and how important it was to begin judgment with ourselves, a corollary part to that is, of course, hypocritical judgment. Others can so easily see through you and me, can't they? When we say and preach and speak one thing, but our lives are obviously something else, then our statements of judgment will have little bearing. It'll have little thrust or force behind it. Others will likely call us hypocrites and ignore what we say. It is the case, of course, that judgment must be done without hypocrisy. After all, the judges in our land, when they sit on the bench and render a judgment, it's to be based on law and those actions. Their own bias, their own prejudice should have no role in it. When it comes to hypocrisy, they certainly ought not be deciding cases because they're hypocritical against one particular class or gender or race or other aspect of humanity. It goes without saying that our religious judgment must be the same. What was it that Paul so profoundly declared in Romans 2 verse 1? Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou condemnest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou art guilty of the same thing. Isn't it true that when we condemn an action in someone else, but we're guilty of the same thing, then if our judgment's valid in condemnation of another, we've just condemned ourselves too. That's easy to see, isn't it? When Paul spoke to the Jews, that was his very point to them. They had been so harsh in their judgment on the Gentiles, and yet Paul said, you Jews have done the same thing. And therefore, you are as hypocrites have condemned yourself. We should certainly remember that point. And notice later in that same chapter, Paul even expounded upon it. You that say a man ought not commit adultery, have you committed adultery? Thou that sayest a man ought not worship idols, have you committed sacrilege? His point's well taken. When you and I thus proceed to present an estimated judgment of someone else, even based on the Scriptures, we first ought to make quick application to ourselves. Have I been guilty of the same thing of which I'm condemning him for? Jesus, in fact, addressed this mightily in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. Noting especially verses 3 through 5, we remember that the Savior made these remarks. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? 
Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. The mote and the beam. We've often thought about that, I'm certain. The word beam has to do with a log, a whole timber. You and I proceed out here to cut down a tree and take off the top of it. What's left is a beam as to what's used here by our Savior. But that word mote, M-O-T-E, that means a splinter, a speck. And isn't it incredibly ironic and hypocritical as well for a person to try and move the beam out of another man's eye when there's a splinter or rather move a speck out of another man's eye when there's a whole log in his own, a whole timber, a beam in his own. Jesus thus perhaps no doubt brought a chuckle from the audience as he taught on that occasion. But yet it's so true, isn't it? How easy it is for you and me to see the fault and to try to aid others to correct those faults in their life when there's a far larger one in terms of proportion in our own. Jesus said, first get the log out of your eye, then you can see clearly to help that other brother take the speck or the splinter out of his own. It's a fair point to note then in return in terms of judgment that we certainly ought never to judge hypocritically. But those powerful passages of Scripture that we apply, we certainly must apply them to ourselves as well. We are not exempt from them. We must practice what we preach. When we seek to thus aid others in their journey toward heaven, in the matters of aspect of their right living before God, may we certainly also live in the high standard set forth in the Bible and to walk worthy of that vocation to which we have been called. Ephesians 4, verse number 1. Perhaps finally we can notice lastly in the lesson today which formed the text for, that was read for us earlier by Brother John in Matthew 7 verses 1 and 2, the two preceding verses to these. We notice there that the judgment that's mentioned reads as follows. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Thus we have learned today that as often as that verse may be quoted in answer to the statement, well, it's wrong for you to judge, we by now have learned that it's not correct to apply that verse to that teaching. Other places command us to judge. So what did Jesus mean when he said, judge not? He obviously was not commanding that all judgment is wrong. What judgment is appropriate? What judgment is to be done? Well, we've learned that Religious teaching must be judged as to whether or not it's correct. We must judge ourselves whether we're in the faith. We must judge, in fact, in, right, in relation to the proper walk toward heaven. All of that's appropriate. What Jesus here meant ties directly to those three verses that follow. Judge not that you be not judged. Why, Lord? For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. The Savior's teaching us here that that particular general idea is this. The type of disposition or attitude that we have toward others in relation to whether or not we answer quickly and condemnationly or harshly or hurtfully or negatively, when we do that, that's typically what we will expect to get from them. In other words, the chickens will come home to roost. 
the bread that's scattered forth will, in fact, come again, Ecclesiastes 11.1. 1. When you and I thus, in a spirit of harshness, and in a spirit that is more of evil than anything else, prejudge without facts the thoughts and the dispositions of others, it is likely that that person will tend to respond toward us the same way we, re we have responded toward them. Again, that's by and large human nature, isn't it? It is to be noted that in James 2 verse 4, we have there a proper note about that judgment that's improper, that is, unrighteous judgment. Certainly we should never judge an unrighteous judgment, but rather to judge righteously, to perceive the facts of the case and to draw conclusions based on them, to align those facts with the teachings of the Bible, to use that as our basis of judgment for drawing conclusions and estimations. And again, in terms of summary, to our lesson this morning, is it wrong to judge? No, it's not. We have learned in regard to judgment, religious judgment is needed. It's vital. It's essential. It's important. And that judgment, will, if it's done properly, must be according to the Scriptures. And we must judge ourselves by that same standard. Furthermore, we must judge the religious teaching to which we are exposed. Fourthly, we learn the impressive fact that in relation to that judgment, it must be done without hypocrisy. And then fifthly, the impressive thought that is a general tendency, that judgment that we perhaps hastily render toward another. If it is in kindness, we might expect kindness expected back in a general judgment from them. But if, however, it is not in that vein, then we should expect that same kind of judgment from them as well. This morning, where do you and I stand then before God? We have the opportunity to use the Scriptures as that basis, and that's God's judgment, not mine or yours. You and I can know whether or not we're saved at this moment. Are you right with God? The Bible tells you that you must be a Christian if you've reached that age in which you know right from wrong. You must be a Christian to be right with Him. For the Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. Have you thus obeyed the gospel initially? Have you believed in the Savior, repented of your sins, confessed His name, and been baptized? If so, then He added your name to the book of life, and you were added to the church. If, however, you have not done that, you need to today. If you have become a child of God, but have not been faithful to that calling, come back to that first love. There's an audience full of brothers and sisters who would very much like to welcome you back safely into their fold. If we could assist you today in either of those ways, we'd be honored and happy to do so, even now while together we stand and while we sing.